Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Hey, you want to know a little secret? Tannin Aquatics, my company, almost didn't happen. Uh, I came very close to doing something quite different. And I know a few, at least a few competitors uh, and people who have tried to copy and rip off my uh, idea for a company recently would have loved that, but here we are. Yeah, so anyway, there was this other lifelong obsession of mine, which seemed to my friends to be a more logical transition for a geeky aquatics entrepreneur, brackish. Yeah, brackish, as in brackish water aquariums, mangrove estuaries, intertidal habitats, stuff like that. I was pretty familiar with these habitats, both as an aquarist and as a traveler, having spent many happy hours in stinky, mosquito-filled tropical backwaters, often knee-deep in mucky soil, poking around mangrove trees with the delight that only a fish geek could take, right? We all know that kind of feeling. I kept brackish water tanks for years. It was a natural complement to reef aquariums, which I was very into, and, and at the time, it seemed like a good way to transition from the coral world, at least. I figured that the tannin thing would come later, a natural digression from salt, sequentially, if you will. Brackish made sense for someone who had his head firmly in the saltwater world for decades, both as an, a hobbyist and later as a business person, uh, owning a, co-owning a, a coral propagation firm. I mean, it wasn't going all the way fresh, so I wouldn't have to wean myself with as much effort. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on it. I developed a brand, product ideas, and all the trappings you'd expect from someone who's totally into something. It was the aquarium world's first completely dedicated brackish water vendor. That's what I was going to be. Talk about niche. Yeah, it was pretty serious. Then I just, one day I just stopped it cold. And as you realized, uh, tannin arose. I went with my primary other obsession first. And as you probably have guessed, this sub-obsession ultimately morphed into Estuary, our brackish water line of natural materials here under the larger tannin aquatics umbrella. And it's played out pretty well, I I think. Uh, We've done quite a bit of work with it. Um, you know, formerly what was a, a moribund version of the brackish water aquarium in the hobby. Instead, we created one that's dynamic, unique, and altogether different than, you know, what's been preferred and proffered in years past by uh, aquarists and, and uh, hobby authorities. And the whole thing centers largely around mangroves, as we've talked about before. Now, we've talked about mangroves a lot, so I'm not going to really go into the mangroves themselves today, but Mangroves, suffice it to say, are woody plants which grow at the interface between land and water in tropical and subtropical regions. And they're what are, what are known to botanists as halophytes, plants that thrive under saltier conditions. And they do very well in higher nutrient substrates. Put a tack in that. And like with our botanical uh, freshwater style obsession, we do well to study these habitats for replication in our aquariums. There's a lot to learn, a lot to unlock. Now, in many brackish water estuaries in the tropics, Rivers deposit silt and mud, which generates nutrients, algae, and fosters the development of other small organisms to form the basis of a food chain. This food chain is very similar to what we've been talking about in our brackish water, or excuse me, our botanical style. Boy, see, I get on a tangent. Uh, Our botanical style aquariums. We spend a lot of time trying to recreate various aspects of food chains in these aquariums, and this is a perfect extension of that practice. 
The nutrients that the mangroves seek lie near the surface of the mud deposited by the tide. Since there's essentially no oxygen available in the mud, there's no point in the mangrove sending you know, down really, really deep roots. Instead, they send out what are called aerial roots. That's what gives them their kind of their cool appearance. And they're sort of hanging, looks like they're hanging on in the mud, which gives the mangroves the appearance of walking on water when the tide comes in. And of course, you know that we have more than a casual interest in substrates, right? So the composition of the substrates where mangroves reside is really interesting. And as a course, we do well to refer to some scientific studies of these habitats. Now, mangrove soils, and we've talked a lot about soils in the freshwater world, at least recently, haven't we? But mangrove soils are this really interesting nutrient-rich mix of uh, marine alluvium transported to sediment and deposited ultimately by rivers and ocean tides. And the soils, uh, they're made up of sand, silt, and clay in various combinations. And they're typically saline, anoxic, often acidic, and frequently waterlogged, really soaked. A real cocktail of variables, right? You often hear the substrate in these habitats referred to as mud, as I said just before. In this context, of course, mud actually refers to a mixture of silt and clay, both of which are rich in organic matter. The topsoil, if you will, is a combination of sand and clay. Now, interestingly, the lighter colored topsoils, which consist largely of sand, are pretty well aerated, meaning a lot of oxygen gets through. The clay-like topsoils, darker colored, are far less aerated. And in a recent study of these habitats that I stumbled upon, because, you know, I'm always stumbling upon this stuff, the researchers concluded uh, that the composition in a typical mangrove habitat um, is as follows. And you're going to like these uh, like these percentages because this is kind of an interesting breakdown. Um, the overall sediment proportion of main fractions is 59% for silt, 21% sand, and 20% clay. Hmm, that's interesting. Quite a recipe, isn't it? Of course, it has implications for those of us who are trying to recreate this type of habitat in our aquariums, doesn't it? I think it does, and I think it's something. <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's something that we should should think about in context um, of you know mangroves uh, in both the wild and in the aquarium because it gives us insight into what they need to grow. And. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about that because I think that's something that we need to, uh, to get into. Now, mangroves themselves, of course, the mangroves habitats, that is, they're usually enclosed, if you will, in protected environments with low energy waters. It's conducive to sedimentation of clay particles. Now, confusing the matter further is that various studies of tropical mangrove forests worldwide have revealed that mangrove soils can be either acidic or alkaline depending on the materials deposited within them. Here we go again, just like the podzolic soils of South America and all those interesting things. Now, in mangrove soils, nitrogen is considered the primary nutrient that affects species composition and mangrove population density. Makes sense. But further analysis found that nitrogen and phosphate influence structure and composition in about equal proportions in these habitats. Potassium, which is beneficial for a lot of plants, is beneficial for mangrove growth, yet it's not as important in brackish habitats as it is in much higher salty environments. So it's, it's like vitally important because it impacts the ability of the, the mangrove plant to regulate itself osmotically. So if you're keeping mangroves in very salty conditions, you know, dosing a fertilizer with uh, potassium might not be a bad idea. Now, we talk in general terms about mangrove soils being nutrient-rich, and they are for the most part. However, as I mentioned above, there's significant variabilities because of the dynamics of the mangrove habitat. <clears throat> Although some soils have extremely low nutrient availability, this factor varies greatly between mangroves and also within a mangrove stand. 
In other words, the mangroves themselves actually influence these factors. In general, it's understood by ecologists that the nutrient-rich, silty sediments produced you know, in these habitats tend to foster faster growth of mangrove seedlings, which is vital in this ecosystem. They need to reproduce quickly. And of extreme interest to those of us who wish to sprout and grow mangrove popicles in the aquarium, having these types of soil uh, or, or substrates available to, to them is important. And of course, the leaves which mangroves regularly drop not only form an interesting aesthetic and a sort of a structural component of the habitat, and therefore the aquarium too, they contribute to the overall biological diversity and richness of the habitat. Here we go again. Fungi and bacteria in brackish saltwater, you know, mangrove ecosystems help facilitate the decomposition of the mangrove material, just like their pure freshwater counterparts do with leaves. Interestingly, in scientific surveys, it's been determined that bacterial counts are generally higher on attached mangrove leaves than they are in freshly foreign, fallen litter. That's kind of interesting because ecologists feel that attached undamaged mangrove leaves don't release much tannin, which, as we know, might have some, you know, um, interesting bac antibacterial properties. So there's, there's some, some interesting dichotomies there. However, it's also been found that, that materials like humic acid, which are abundant in the mangroves themselves, stimulate phytoplankton growth in mangrove environments. So interesting, right? Um, now, leaf drop is, as, as we just said, a big deal in mangrove habitats. And this phenomenon is something we can and should replicate in our aquariums. The high level of carbon, what they call allocation to the roots of mangroves, in other words, carbon uptake, in conjunction with mangrove leaf litter fall and the, the rather low rates of decomposition which occur in those anoxic soils results in mangrove ecosystems being quite rich in organic matter. It's that mud that I love to traipse through, right? And despite these lower rates of decomposition, the mangrove leaf litter is a major source of nutrients in the mangrove ecosystem. Yeah, there we go, leaves again. The leaves of mangroves as they break down become subject to both leaching of the compounds in their tissues as well as microbial breakdown. Compounds like potassium and carbohydrates are commonly leached pretty quickly, followed by the tannins. Fungi are, of course, the first responders to leaf drop in mangrove communities, followed by bacteria, which serve to break down the leaves further. And you notice mangrove leaves are pretty durable. They last a long time when they're submerged. And of course, higher organisms like shrimp, crab, and, you know, crab and mollusks uh, are very dominant or, you know, as higher organisms in these systems. And they perform an important role in processing leaves and other organic materials which accumulate in them. So again, in our aquariums, not a bad idea to have some snails, maybe some shrimp, uh, even some crabs. Now, the organisms that are found in mangrove habitats, just for reference, are referred to as either epifauna or infauna, as the, and they perform different roles within the ecosystem. Epifauna refers to the invertebrates that live on various substrates, such as the lower tree trunks and the sediment surface, but they don't burrow into it. That's gastropods, you know, crabs and bivalve species. Those are typically representative of the epifauna and mangrove systems, you know, the mangrove uh, oysters and so forth that we see. Now, the term infauna, which you'll hear me say once in a while, refers to burrowing invertebrates, which live within the sediment. That includes some crabs, some shrimps, polychaete worms, and sepunculate worms. So it's also called peanut worms and other things that reef aquarists are a little more familiar with because they're more common in these habitats, but very interesting stuff. And then, of course, there are the fishes of all types. So, yeah, we love the idea of creating the, your brackish water ecosystem around leaves and mangroves, either alive or just utilizing the roots or branches to stimulate the appearance of a mangrove root system. The possibilities are just endless for creating really fascinating aquariums and unlocking some cool secrets. And those of you who have experience with both aquatic plants and botanical-style aquariums will really enjoy our interpretation of the brackish water habitat. You're going to love it because it's a lot of what you've been doing already. 
And if you're also a Marina Chorus, that set can skill of skills can only help you. Yeah, there's so much going on in this in this area. There's so much for us to play with as hobbyists. In fact, part of me is actually feeling a bit guilty that I unleashed the estuary idea so early on in Tannen's existence, which was about two and a half years ago. Um, actually, yeah, about two and a half years ago. And it's funny because we were just starting to venture in and, and, and unlock the whole Blackwater Botanical game at that point. But um, And it probably, the brackish thing was just another distraction. But on the other hand, I think the two can and have continued to develop together and spur on all kinds of new hobby ad, you know, advances and understandings of functional aesthetics and ecosystems and so forth. And in fact, I think they already have. So if you were contemplating playing around with this whole brackish water or botanical style aquarium game, I think it's a really good time to experiment. Especially, uh, again, I've been talking about substrates and soils. We're going to start working with that too. And and uh, this year, the goal is to have some of our little formulations out there for you to play with on, on the brackish side as well. We're looking forward to seeing a whole lot more of your experiments and ideas coming to light in this sort of tinted, slightly salty world. It's really neat stuff. And the time has never been better to apply our skill set to this really cool part of the hobby. So stay curious, stay resourceful, stay excited, stay adventurous, stay creative, stay enthusiastic, and always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Bellman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.